it's that time of year and maybe it's already passed where many people wonder what they're going to do with the rest of their lives maybe they're going through a mini crisis maybe it's a midlife crisis and as you'll find out today in today's episode that is a perfect place for reinvention to happen we are joined by the master coach the man who's gone through much change in his own life and is here with us again after his past experience on the show to share his new book so he is the author of Compass on the Radar, the book there behind me on the shelves, and he's back with a brand new book, and this is a beauty, The Seven Games of Leadership. We are joined by the author of that and his previous book, Paolo Gallo. Welcome to the show. Well, thanks so much, uh, Adam. It's such a pleasure to be back uh, in, in your show. I, I would be hesitant to call me a master, <laughs> but uh, let's see if we can make a, a sense after that conversation. <laughs> I was a little bit leading with that master because you have a master coach in your family as well. And she made an appearance in our last show. We mentioned your daughter, Sadika, and she's been a great teacher for you in many ways, as children are in our lives. And she coached the master coach with a probing question. And I thought we'd open up with this because she asked you, what is the most important thing you have learned over the last 30 years of work? Big question. Yeah, well, thank you, Aiden. Clearly, you have read my book with with due attention, so I and something I immensely appreciate. I have to say, it's not always the case uh, when I have conversation or podcast. Uh, so, something that I immensely respect and appreciate. Let's go back to my daughter. My daughter she just turned eighteen, and uh, I've been tormenting her for many years by asking her, "What did you learn this week?" Because that's the question that my father used to ask me, and so you, you go from generation to generation, but. A couple of years ago, actually, during Christmas holidays, she said, Daddy, but, you know, you've been asking this question for many years to me, and but what did you learn in your 30 years experience? And that question was a powerful one, so I did take a bit of time to answer to her. And one day I, I took her for, for a dinner, a sushi dinner, and uh, we spent two wonderful hours together in which I was telling what I believe I've learned in, in, in two years' time, in, in my 30 years' experience. And then one day she left a yellow stickers on the computer and she said, she wrote, Daddy, I loved your story. Why don't you write a book about it? And so I, I, I thought that was a good suggestion and I decided to, to write this book to answer to her. And it, it's not a memoir about Paolo Gallo because nobody would care, but it really uh, sharing the experience of helping organization teams of individuals in their own professional development. So... It's more about the journey to become a leader and how you go there rather than uh, describing qualities uh, that leaders should display, which is maybe uplifting, but not so helpful. I loved it. I love the I love the personal touches throughout the book. And the book is a beautiful mix of Paolo's reading, your own learning, your own experiences, your experiences with World Bank, for example, your personal experiences of change and how you've basically created your own career today as well and also one of the things that I, I always got from you is that when you're entering into a new career don't think about what salary you're getting but actually go what will I learn during that period as well I think they're really important lessons but let's let's get into this book because there's a lot in it and I'd love to touch on the seven games so this, it's called The Seven Games of Leadership, and you mentioned Eric Burns' Games People Playbook. It was an early book I read in my own personal development, 
and you mentioned it as a, a an important influence in this book in the framework of this book so maybe we'll start off with explaining what you mean by the seven games of leadership basically if you look at the let's say the theory behind you know Carl Jung was the first psychologist who has clearly summarized the different phases of our life because contrary to Freud that they believe that when you hit your 40s you, you're done with your development uh, Jung said no actually you keep on developing yourself until the very last day so because of the reason I'm much more a young Jung fans than a Freud fans no um, and so the reason why I call them games uh, is because you need to understand the rules that are kind of uh, shaping uh, the different phases of your personal development and, and one day, going back to the story of my daughter, no, because one day when my daughter said, said Paolo, Daddy, what, what did you learn? I said, actually, I met you know, thousands of people in my life. And a lot of them through interviews. I've been, I've been head of human resources for 16 consecutive years in the World Bank, at the BRD, at the World Economic Forum. I coached uh, hundreds of people. I met uh, thousands of students and people attending my seminars or workshop or keynotes. And, but then I, I say to, to, to Savika, while it is true that I met thousands of people, I really believe that the, I, I had uh, the same conversation thousands of times uh, because I recognize there are some traits, uh, some um, features, some challenges that are common regardless of any other variable you may think of. You can be from Ireland, you can be a young guy uh, or an old woman, it doesn't really matter whatever variable you consider. Uh, there are some predictable phases in your development uh, and I noticed by having this thousand conversation and of course my my studies in coaching and, and, and whatever I've done in my life one day I, I put all the you know the different topics they came up and I end up with seven spots of colors on the carpet you know to say okay this these people had this challenge these people had this challenge so that's formed my visualization of the game sir. And in that book, I'm trying to explain the journey that you go through to become a leader. So it's not about, you know, becoming a CEO and making $10 million to say, how do you grow as an individual? Okay. How do you de develop the, the, the attitudes, the mindset, the gravitas, the wisdom that allows you to be a credible leader, regardless of the sector, regardless of the job that you, you're trying to do? So in this book, I, I hope to, to provide a framework and a guide to readers for them to say, yeah, Paolo, that's where I am right now. And that's what I think I should be doing or should be thinking or not doing in order to progress in my in my own journey. And we'll go through the spiral framework that Paolo introduces as well, a beautiful framework as well. And I'm going to show that to you on the screen for those people watching us on YouTube. But before we do, there was a really important aspect you talked about, which is really the why. Well, why do you, why does this even matter? And why does it matter more today than ever before? And you say, well, that's because we're encountering what you call what the F moments. <laughs> and you tell us that there's an increasing need for what you call contextual intelligence and that we need to also understand and master master these frequent W2AF moments. So maybe you'll unpack that for us as well before we get stuck in. Sure. Now, the first couple of chapters, I want, uh, I want to do some preparatory work, you know, and on, on one side, the, the WT moments are moments that are derailing our attention because something surprising is happening to us. You know? It could be in our personal life. 
or, or as we have seen in the last couple few years, there is the frequency, the intensity of this moment of disbeliefs are increasing exponentially. I don't want to make the list, but you, you kind of know from COVID to the war in Ukraine, what's happening right now in Gaza, what's happening on October 7 in Israel. And I'm Italian, and if you look at Italian politics, you don't know where, where to bang your head because it's just, just so so bad that you, you, you can't really believe it. If you're thinking about uh, the American election, you start to fear that the worst is coming back again. So this moment are part of our life, okay? But if you constantly divert our attention to these kind of things, you're losing the focus of what really matters, Okay. Because even if you read uh, 300 articles about COVID or 700 articles about uh, the American election, yeah, you maybe become more, more qualified or more informed, uh, but there's very little that you can do. So the one is these moments that the radio attention exists, it's important to pay some element of attention, but cannot be your focus. Second, and I provide a, a table in, in, in my book, you need to develop what in, in psychology is called contextual intelligence, which is the capacity to connect the dots, the capacity to understand how you work in a, in a system where everything is connected, no? which doesn't mean that you need to be qualified in every single topic worldwide. You cannot be an expert on artificial intelligence, climate change, demographic, geopolitics, and medicine, of course, no? but at least you need to know that these elements will have an impact uh, in whatever you're doing. On the cognitive standpoint, on the personal standpoint, you need to develop a relationship with people, institutions, companies, or universities that provide that knowledge that you need to have in order to deal with this, the complexity of what you're referring to. So in a way, I'm saying, listen, you're not going to go through a journey, but there are, let's say, traps or ambushes along the way which I call the what-the-fuck moments, that you have to be careful. And you have also to develop, regardless of your specialization in, in whatever metier, in whatever job you're doing, you need to have a, a broader understanding of what's going on because what's going on will have an impact or already has an impact in whatever you're doing. So if you're able to, to master these two elements, these two mindsets, you're probably already well-channeled in order to have a, a meaningful personal and professional development. And another key element of this then is you say, and I love this even shift in mindset from, oh, this is the new normal, which is a term that we hear all the time. You say it's not so much a new normal, but a new context. And to be able to make sense of that and create that new context, you need to understand what you call the five C's, chaos, crisis, complexity, confusion, and constant change. Maybe we'll just give it a touch on that and then we'll dive into the spiral. Now here, again, listen, I think it's fair to say that everybody would love to return to normality, whatever normality is. And, uh, and, and you see on TV programs, when you see you know, songs uh, played 30 years ago, there is an element of reassurance uh, in thinking that the future is going to look like the past. Okay? But you are, you, you're fooling yourself if you believe that this is the case, because expecting that the future will be a mirror of what you left behind uh, it really doesn't, doesn't, doesn't work. It's like when you meet your classmates of high school 30 years later and you expect to have the same conversation that you have 30 years before. If it does happen, you are in the wrong place because it means that people have not developed. No? So returning or thinking that the new normal is what's, what's happening around the corner is actually, in my view, totally wrong. You know? What you need to, to think is actually, it's going to be a new context. And the context is a neutral place. Huh? 
where you have to shape uh, what you're going to find in this context. And the concept provides risk and opportunities. No? And, and so when you have this mindset of recreating something, then recreating yourself uh, becomes a consequence of the thinking. If you just expect that what you're going to find in the future is going to reflect what you've done in the past, uh, again, for the second time, I think you, 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 it's not going to work. Uh, and, and I think uh, the last few years have been a proof that uh, the future doesn't look like uh, what you left behind. Okay, we're set up nicely now to jump onto the rungs. And it's what I, what I really loved was your spiral and the, the kind of mental model that that gives you then to navigate throughout the book. Because what we kind of have thought about in the past is the arrow of time, your lifeline goes from left to right, and it's linear, or perhaps it's a ladder. And you go, well, actually, it's more like a spiral, because it will kind of back on itself and you'll actually need to navigate and earn your right to move up this spiral so to maybe introduce that and to jump on to game one the inner game i'll share on the screen that beautiful graphic that you have that's throughout the book as well paolo and give it maybe give us an overview of the entire graphic and then we'll jump into game one the inner game first of all on the spiral because i wanted to have something that is um, visually meaningful that capture the essence of, of what my book is all about. No? And the fact that this spiral is getting bigger, it becomes every circle contains uh, the one before, but not the one following. So you're growing on the spiral. So um, th that's the overall idea. No? So the, the game number one, which is the first phase of our life, is, is the inner game. And I have to say the title was clearly inspired by the inner game of tennis by by Tim Galloway, which is the first uh, mental coach in sports uh, for tennis, uh, and is uh, uh, fundamentally related to two elements. The first element uh, is uh, um, what are you good at? W what motivates you? What are your passions? What are your talents? Uh, what are your strengths? Uh, um, and I'm quoting this wonderful phrase from a quote from uh, Mark Twain, uh, the two most important days of your life, and the day where you're born and the day where you find out why. Okay, so is is the capacity to answer with clear clarity in your mind uh, why am I here? And it's not about working in uh, banking or in consulting or in academia. It's not about do you want to become a manager or vice president or making ten or twenty. It's not about that. It's about purpose. It's about values. It's about what you're very good at. And the second element, uh, the inner game, is being able to master. The, the debate that you have uh, in your mind. Uh, so going back to the book, The Inner Game of Tennis, uh, he has this beautiful phrase to say, when I'm talking to myself, who is me and who is myself? Okay. So the capacity to master the inner game, uh, the capacity of self-control, and the cap capacity to have a positive dialogue within yourself. So the, the, the inner game is fundamental to understand the direction and the purpose that you're going to have in your life. So it's not about grabbing a job because somebody resigned. It's not about, you know, applying to a vacancy because a friend told you so. It's about, you know, that's what I want to do in life. The better game is fundamentally, once you find out what you want to be good at, becoming good in doing it. So is mastering that specific game. And these two phases are very egocentric because you're focusing on yourself. You're focusing on finding your purpose and you're focusing in getting better in doing what you're doing. 
Then uh, I have to say the third game uh, is probably the first uh, big step uh, in your personal and professional life. Okay, uh, the caring and the outer usually occurs in professional terms uh, when you start to become a, a manager. So you're managing all the people. So you're not just responsible for you and your deliverables or whatever, but you, you start to be responsible of a team. An outer game is a capacity to develop contextual intelligence, open the window and see what's happening outside. And so to develop this uh, curiosity of learning for elements that are not necessarily only related to your job, your company, your sector. You know? So there is an element of intellectual curiosity. And I have to say, some people struggle to move from two to three because the problem of, of being very good in the better game, that you end up doing the same game for all over your life. And, and it's like being a musician that has written a beautiful song and you continue singing that song for the rest of your life. After a while, it becomes tiring for you to sing and for people to listen to that song. If it's all right with you, as we go up, I, I pulled a few little pieces from each of those chapters that I love, that I love to just lean on. And there's a lot in each of them. But what I loved about the caring game and the outer game is that you say, when we internalize the need to let go of the technical aspects of a role, and we add value by managing people, achieving consensus, defining strategy, and becoming responsible for work done by others, we are not a solo player anymore. Because... I think that's such an important thing. You mentioned, for example, you're a huge Springsteen fan. And at the end of every concert, I didn't know this. I've never been to one of his concerts. He gets up on the piano and he announces that he has a team and it's only through the team that he can actually get things done and he can be the star that he is. And I thought that was really interesting because for many people who work in innovation, we're so used to doing it on our own and driving the change but actually that will only get you so far and you will be stuck as a solo player if you can't actually orchestrate everybody to come together yeah this is a um, let's say typical rookie mistake that i've seen many times now and uh, if i can rely maybe to relate to my uh, former experience as of human resources now i i saw a lot of people that they were bloody good in doing the, whatever they were doing okay there's no doubt that these people were fantastic uh, professionally and technically incredibly strong uh, in their own uh, metier in their own profession okay but there is a moment where uh, being a technical expert in whatever domain uh, is necessary but not sufficient to be a leader and uh, when you become a leader there is a great book which i quote over there becoming a leader by linda hill to say when you become a leader you actually you are you're supporting people to grow. You're not there to prove them that you're still better than everybody else. That's a mistake that I've did myself. In my early 30s, I've been promoted head of HR, the BRD, and I had 45 people working for me. And I thought that I needed to prove that I was better than everybody else, working harder than everybody else. And that really didn't work. Because while it is true that I put 60 or 70 hours per week, I wasn't, I wasn't really developing my own team. And so I... I, I through a coach, uh, I remember that I shifted my, my mindset to say, no, Paolo, you're not here to be here at 7 in the morning, living 9 in the evening every day, including Saturdays. But, you know, you, you have to grow your people. You have to, to, to build a team. You have to develop people. And I recently, in another interview, I, I, I remember coping with, struggling with the question because as a leader, do you want to develop capacity 
or to develop dependency. If you develop dependency, people will continue to rely on you, on decisions, and you have not developed a team. You developed a group of executors that are waiting for you to be told what to do. And this is not a team. This is a bunch of people that just execute orders. But you become a leader when you develop independent thinker and you see them, people working for you or with you, that they come with their own solution. They come with their own ideas. They, they develop creativity. They develop independent thinking and thought leadership. When this has happened, that means that you're becoming actually a leader. And the Bruce Springsteen example is, yeah, of course, I love the boss. But at the end of the concert, he said, hey, you know, I, I needed a band. I needed people working with me. And guess what? The guy, Bruce Springsteen, has been playing with the same musician for 40 years. And you can see the glue, the, the trust, uh, the clarity, the commitment of the band playing together because they understood the role of everybody in the, in, in the team, in the band in this case. There's, there's an important thing you ask here as well, which is in, within this whole section, you say, you got to ask yourself a question, which is, what's the opposite of collaboration? And most people you tell us will respond naturally with competition. But you say, take time, pause and reflect and ask yourself if that's the correct answer. If so, competition should be avoided at all costs, right, you say? But to you, you tell us the opposite of collaboration is something different. It's envy. It's sabotaging other people's effort or taking credit for their work. It's backstabbing. And there's a reason I bring that up, Paolo, particularly for audience of the innovation show, is that it's quite surprising that Sometimes when you make you make you have some moderate success with an idea or just within an organization, people start to take note for you. Perhaps you start writing and you start to create a, a persona. People start to recognize that. Many times the people who are in charge of your development will actually block you rather than actually help you. And I think that's something that we need to call out because it happens a lot of people particularly people who work in change efforts, and they feel that it's a personal attack. But actually, it's this phenomenon that you're talking about, about sabotage and envy. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Yes, Aiden. And uh, I want to provide actually two practical examples. In, in whatever domain you want to uh, to excel in your life, no? what do you do? Okay, let's use it because I love tennis. Okay, let's say that you want to play tennis. What do you do? Well, you watch Federer games and Djokovic or Nadal or whatever players game. So you see the best, okay? In order to write my book, I read 123 books, including yours, which is a bloody good book uh, because it's so creative. So why I'm telling you this is because when you, when you want to improve, you go to, to, to see who are the best people in the field. When I did my TED Talk, I was literally shaking until three minutes before going on stage. But I, I, the reason why I, I became actually, I, I've been able to manage it because I say, Paolo, come on, you, you watch more than 100 TED Talks yourself in order to improve, in order to learn how to do a good one. No? So to me, the opposite of, of, of um, uh, as, as we discussed, the, the opposite collaboration is also not competition because you, you want to learn from, from the people that you're competing with. And when I say competing, I don't mean elbowing or backstabbing. It means uh, how can I learn from the best in the field? Then you may end up, uh, example, tennis, 
understanding that you will never become as good as Federer, but at least you 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 see how how he plays, how he moves on the court, the mental game that he's playing. You don't want to cut and paste a book written by somebody else, but you say, oh, that's that's a bloody interesting you know perspective, you know. And in fact, yours. So when 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 you contributed to my book, I read. 40 or 50 of your articles and I fell in love with some of them and I say, Aiden, I would love to use that article in my book because this article is bloody good. So to me, I wasn't competing. I wasn't learning from you. Okay. Competing to, to me and, and, and actually is an element of collaboration because if you're competing in a, in a fair way, both of you would improve. And again, going back to tennis, you see that when Feder announced his retirement, when he played the last game, he held hand with Nadal, and they both cried. And they said, "I would have not become who I became without the other guy." So this is a beautiful example. The competition is actually can ignite your improvement. The opposite of collaboration is enviness. Is people trashing you? Is people not paying credit? Is people kind of you know doing not nice things to you? This is not competition. This is it's it, it just pretty terrible behavior, which fundamentally implies mental laziness. Because when you see somebody is better than you, be humble because you can learn a lot. If I see Federer, I say, oh, this guy is a, is a terrible guy. He's, he's, he cannot play tennis. And of course, he's cheating or, or whatever. Okay, I can say so, but I, w- I will not improve my own game. So it's essential to me to understand who are the best in, in, in your field learning from them, asking questions, because most of the people are really happy to share their secrets, their insights. For example, when I, I wanted to become a writer, I invite Daniel Pink to give a speech at the World Bank. I was at the time chief learning officer. I invite him for lunch and to say, hey, Daniel, I'd love to, to write a book. And he gave me some very good advice. And we, we stayed in contact. He, he endorsed my book. And I've learned a lot from, from Dan, because I think he's actually he's a bloody good writer and a convincing speaker. So, you know, learn from the best uh, is not competition, is, is, is a way of collaborating that will help you to grow. If you go in the other direction, you're going to miss an opportunity. I love it. And, and actually, then the other side of that, Paolo, I'm sure, you t- and you talk about this in the book, where you talk about networking, and you, again, have an expert right on, on ex- networking, is there has to be an element of reciprocity as well. Like, in order to ask somebody, you have to be contributing some way. I, th- I think that's, you know, as, as I saw the spiral diagram, I thought about how as I've went up the diagram, I, I feel that I've, I've been contributing more to society in some way. And actually, it's that, it's that feedback from thinking that you're doing that or hoping you're doing that. That's actually where the real joy comes from rather than how much am I taking from myself? No, no, absolutely, absolutely, yes. I mean, to me, reciprocity is on which base do you want to start a relationship, okay? And I'm referring now to a personal, a professional relationship, but to me, it's the same concept applied for personal relationship. And there has to be some element of reciprocity. And when I say reciprocity, I don't mean on a financial terms. Like, you know, if, if I pay you 1000 today, I expect you to pay me 1000 tomorrow. That, that's not what, what I mean. But when you look back at your relationship in, in your professional life, do you feel that you have contributed and you have received as well? If the answer is uh, no, you, you don't feel that way, you feel that you only contributed, 
or you only took her, then there is a disbalance in this relationship. And one of the things that I always look in, in, in relationship is some element of reciprocity, which is reciprocity is based on trust, okay? I mean, while we're talking today, Aiden, the two of us, because I believe we trust each other, we respect each other. There is no financial element attached to it. And I value immensely this, this, this relationship. So I, I invite people to attempt to take stock and perhaps it's a good moment at the beginning of the year to say, look back at your relationship and try to find out that there is some reciprocity in that point. If you feel that the answer is no, have a conversation with that individual and if you feel that this individual is kind of play, playing around, beating around the bush, uh, cheating, or, or not be transparent, just let him go. Let him go. And, uh, and recently I read actually a very good quote from Carl Jung, who said, I don't regret the people that I lost uh, during my time, but I, re- I regret the time that I lost uh, with the wrong people. And, uh, and so, you know, w- w- when the reciprocity is, is not there, then, then, then it's not a healthy relationship to continue. I love that. And it's so true also for personal relationships. So I was thinking about that when you were saying this, that I think where my relationship, even my wife got better, is when I stopped, I stopped looking for her to do things. And I actually st- started to do the things that I would lo- like her to do, as in try to be the person that I would like to be loved, you know, to to do that. And then, then things started to get better. It's like, so you have to actually be the change you want to see as, as is, I think it's attributed to Gandhi, maybe, or somebody like that. But that, that saying is so true is that you need to be that person first, and then it will come back to you. The reciprocity will start to, to flow back to you. But let's build on it because I mentioned at the top of the show and, and you said how, uh, how this is a good time of year to take stock and that your book is perfectly timed for this time of year. But sometimes the stock is forced upon you. And and it's one of the real drivers of, of my work. And I, and I can see it with your work as well is, is don't wait for the crisis. Don't wait for a crisis that's out of your control. If there's going to be a crisis, you be in charge of, of implementing that crisis, which could be a midlife crisis. But actually, even when that happens, it can be necessity. And you talk about this, the, the importance of embracing the necessity of a midlife crisis. And you mentioned an example of during a midlife crisis, we are moving from deficiency motivators to growth motivators and how a midlife crisis is an, an exe- existential necessity in some cases. I'd love you to take us through this. Yeah, I mean, crisis is a Greek word that means the necessity of a decision. And I jokingly said this crisis is like Easter. You probably don't know the date, but you know it's coming. Okay. And invariably, I, I met many people that are dealing with a crisis. And I thought the crisis is, is created by what I call the life quake. There are earthquakes and life quakes. And life quakes are, are something to shake your ground where you stay, you know. And I don't want to sound, you know, negative or pessimistic, but, you know, when, when somebody gets sick in your family, when something terrible happens, when you lose your health, your job, your money, your house, your country, your freedom. These are life quake moments that really shape the way you are going forward. Okay. But even if there are no life quakes, and hopefully people don't have one, but most of them do, and including myself, when this life quake happens, 
is actually the most bloody difficult moment of your personal and professional life. Yeah, and usually happens according to many statistics. Sometimes in the late forties, okay, or early fifties. At times a little bit earlier, at times a little bit later, but anything between forty-five to fifty-two, you hit that moment. And this is a moment where you scratch your head. Uh, and if I can use a soccer analogy, you wonder if you want to play the second half of the game the way you play the first half of the game. And the answer is no, you don't. And I always do a, a small exercise when I do my coaching sessions. And I can do this with you right now. Not with you, Aiden, but with you that are listening to this podcast. And I, I say this to, to my clients when I do coaching. I say, listen, I'm going to ask you a question. But I'm going to take my phone. I'm going to take a picture of you one fraction of a second after asking you this question. And people will be surprised. They say, what Paolo wants to do is crazy. If I listen, don't worry. I'm going to delete the, que- the, the picture one second later. It's not going to be posted anywhere. Uh, please trust me. And they trust me. And the question is, uh, how do you feel if you were to do what you do right now for the rest of your life? And immediately, the face that looked like, now, not nice, not nice feeling, because your feeling goes faster to your face than your thoughts to your mind, okay? It takes a few seconds for your, for your brain to elaborate the thoughts, uh, but the gut's reaction is immediate. So I show the picture to the individual to say, okay, this is the way you feel by visualizing that you're now 47 and you're going to do this for the next uh, 18 years. What does it mean to you, Okay. What does it mean, the visualization, that continuing doing what you're doing is not a, a visually appealing uh, journey in your life, okay? And so you start to, to help people to think uh, that perhaps continuing the way you've done in the past is not meaningful. Why? Because in the first part of your life, uh, when you play the, specifically the better game, the better game is a game driven by deficiency motivators. So you start as a junior um, graduate, you want to become vice president, you want to make some money, you want to get married, you want to have kids, buy a house, a nice car, and hopefully go on vacation once or twice per year. Fair enough. That's not wrong. But there is a moment, usually in your late 40s, you're going to say, is that all in my life? Do, do I really want to have another promotion? Would a 5% increase really change my life? Would a new model of a car dramatically change the way I see life? Did I miss something important by missing maybe the birthday of my kids or, or, or by working, you know, hard uh, even a Christmas day? And I'm going to say something that is awful, and I'm not so sure a lot of guys will continue listening to the podcast after listening to what I'm saying. But I confess, let me tell you immediately, I confess that I went to the office the day in which I got married. Yeah. So I asked my wife, can we get married in the morning because I have an important meeting in the afternoon? Okay, so this is how idiot I was when I was 32 because I was playing the better game. I wanted to be the best. I wanted to prove that I was so committed. I was there 50 hours, 60 hours per week. So that game eventually erodes, evaporates, and it doesn't work anymore. Sometimes in your late 40s, mid to late 40s. And so you hit the crisis moment. And the crisis moment is not change, it's a transformation. And this is important to me. It's probably the core of my book. Change means you're working for Citibank, 
Yes, I think I can love to go to JP Morgan. And you go to JP Morgan. Or you work for, I don't know, NatWest and you go to Unicredit. So you are fundamentally doing the same in a different context, hoping terms of condition are better. Fair enough. We manage changes. We manage changes when we got married. We manage changes when we moved house. We manage changes when we moved to another country. So change management is not easy. But fundamentally, you remain who you are as an individual. When these thoughts to say, shit, I cannot do the next 20 years, what I've been doing the last 20 years, this is not change. The change is you're not going to solve the problem by going from Citibank to, to JP Morgan. Okay? You're going to solve the problem by acknowledging that something deeper is happening inside you and you're going to go through a transformation. Okay? Transformation in Latin means be transire, going to another place. Hmm? So when you go to another place, you are a different individual. And the outcome of the transformation that you are a transformed individual and you cannot return what you were before. So when the caterpillar becomes a butterfly, when you become a butterfly, you, you don't say, you know what, I, let me go back. No, no, it's too late. You're a butterfly. End of story. You cannot return back. So it's a process that cannot be reversed back. Hmm? While on a change, you may change job, you go to JP Morgan, then you're not so happy, and then after six months, maybe you return to Citibank. What I'm trying to say is, is something that can be fixed by returning back to the former state. Transformation, you can't. So a crisis, you're dealing with a transformation. And then what I notice is that people react in four different modalities, and one, only one of them is meaningful, and the other three, they drive you to some dead alley that doesn't get you anywhere. I love that when you when you talked about that in the book about you said you often wonder does a caterpillar know it's going to transform so does but when it when it like caterpillar don't have like an education system that can zoom out and kind of go this is what will happen to us right but we do I, I and I think knowing that knowing that this spiral is almost the life cycle of a of any organism you know that you're going to go through this. So if you can prepare and be ready and take this as a playbook for life, you'll actually, you'll, you'll see each of these moments earlier and you'll be able to be proactive about them. I think that's one of the real values of the book as well, that it gives people this. Because one of the things I think to recognize, and because you, you, in each chapter, in each, each level of the spiral, Paolo goes deep into each of these different elements. But in the crisis section, you say there's typically four responses. There's the faithful soldier, the red ball, Peter Pan, or the brave traveler. Maybe we'll share those as well, because I, I think this chapter is probably the one that touched me most, the most profound of all. Yeah, thank you. Adrian. Also, it was the most painful for me to, to write, because I've been through that that phase myself. It's not something that I don't know, I read, I did a course, I followed a seminar and off you go, that's that's the chapter. I mean I you can smell my, my sweat and blood in the chapter. No, I know it's it's not nice what I'm about to say, but it, 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 I it was painful for me to go through this process. And because it was painful I tried to offer people a framework, a path uh, and they, they can get out of that one. And when you feel in that crisis moment, you, you're not stupid, you're not crazy. It is, it's normal and it's part of your development, okay? So what's happened? Let's say that you're 45, you know, you, you're, you're working a little bit harder for 20 years, you got some good level, 
in your organization, you have good salary. And then usually this moment where your kids are teenager, your parents are elderly, you have a mortgage, and you have a certain, let's say, responsibilities that comes with your role as a father, as a husband, as a son, as a daughter, and in, in your community, you know? So you, 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 you may be proud of your achievement, but there is a, an increasing discontent and the inner voice inside you would say, I'm not so sure I want to play this next phase of my life the way I played the other one, okay? And so you don't know what to do. So and what I, what I noticed that people respond in four different ways. The first one I call the lawyer soldiers, which is people say, you know what? Okay, I, I, I maybe have to work harder. Maybe I have to be more committed. Maybe I have to show up at the office earlier. Maybe I have to still prove that I'm very good, which is commendable from the uh, commitment standpoint, but is, is usually the recipe of a burnout within 18 months. This for sure. And maybe 24 months, but it's, it's, the burnout is coming. The second response is a call the red ball because fundamentally, you know, when, when you're in the swimming pool or, or or on the sea that you have a ball and you try to hide the ball under the surface, it takes a lot of effort to keep the ball under the surface. And as soon as you don't pay attention, the ball is, is coming up again. No? So the red ball is fundamentally you deny that this is the case. Ah, I don't know, it's just, just the passengers, it's nothing major, just need a vacation. Or, you know, after the weekend will be fine. Or over Christmas, I'll, I'll, I'll relax and I'll be, I'll be great. And this denial is becoming more and more tiring because hiding the ball is actually extremely time consuming and the energy that you spend in hiding is actually more than the energy that you should be spending in solving it okay so not a recommended approach the third approach uh, is um, a regression the peter pan syndrome in which you are again maybe in your 50s and you feel that the the motivation is no longer there and you want to return back 20 years so what do you do you get a young lover, you get a sports car, you go to Mykonos on vacation, and for two months, you say, bingo, I solved the problem, I'm young again. Now, then, usually, you have a series of legal, uh, uh, economical, and emotional problems attached to this approach, and joking beside, I don't recommend it. So, the regression of, let's pretend that I'm still 30, and let's behave as if I'm 30, it really doesn't work, Okay. So the third one, the fourth one, is what I call the brave traveler, is to say, okay, I'm dealing with this crisis right now. I have the sensation, the feeling, the, the awareness that continuing what you've been doing in the better game for many, many years doesn't really work. It would not work. And you start building the next phase, which I call the reinvention, which if it's managed correctly and intelligently, will give you the energy, the enthusiasm, and the motivation to move from deficiency motivations, deficiency in Latin means what you don't have, to meaning motivation. So you are reflecting more of what is meaningful to you, and all of a sudden, you have reinvented yourself, you have energy in front of you, and believe me, it's much more than writing a, a new CV or putting a new picture on LinkedIn. It's really rethinking how you add value to the people and the community that you serve, by going back to the inner game and understanding what motivates you, what you're good at. So, Paolo, you've teed us up nicely. The, the crisis comes often before the transformation. And I, I actually think about how that is so much the case that oftentimes the difficult situation that we've all experienced, when we look back on it, 
probably was so important in that it was the push we needed. It was um, the universe telling us that's not your way. You should be going this way. And we look back on them kind of going, oh, thankfully that happened to me, whether it's a broken relationship or a career, maybe you were let go from an organization. Oftentimes we look back, and we go, oh, thankfully that happened because otherwise I would have never found this. And I think when you know that, and again, it's like the butterfly knowing it's going to transform. If you zoom out, you can spot these patterns all the time and it can make them easier to transition then as a result of that. But you mentioned the term reinvention and that's a chapter, that's a spiral, one of the spirals as well. And I love the quote you opened here with uh, my fellow countryman, George Bernard Shaw. He said, life isn't about finding yourself. Life is about creating yourself. I love that. Over to you. Well, first of all, major contribution of my book uh, on that topic is from you. Uh, because I've learned a lot by listening to your podcast, reading your articles. Uh, heavy, uh, frankly, and this is not, a, you know, I mean, sincerely, there is an element of creativity of, 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 of seeing things from another perspective, which is to me is essential in the reinvention game, no? And you, you, you have mastered it. But not only cognitively, also emotionally, in in, 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 in your in your writing, in your speeches, and and whatever contribute your contribution you offer to to people. No, so reinventing actually is a fun moment of your life. And again, it's not about a new CV or a new picture on, on LinkedIn. It's really going back to say to 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 reflect on a couple of things. To say how can you serve the people, the clients, the community in a meaningful way. No? So it doesn't start from, from you know, how much can I charge? It doesn't start from the fees that you're going to charge as a coach or as a speaker. You really to say, how can I be helpful? How, how can I help? Because if you, if you answer to this question, then bingo, you, you have a business model just in front of you. And for example, when I was reflecting about this, and this is this is very important, I'm going to maybe say something that is not in my book. I have to remove the book from the book because the book otherwise would have been 400 pages. But when, for example, you leave an organization, okay, you work for JP Morgan, Citibank, whatever organization we think of, you know, Ferrari or, or any organization, you are in a way benefiting from the brand of this organization, okay? And understandably, people want to work for brands that are well-known. And that's, you know, what fashion does. I mean, a Gucci bag costs 3,000 euros. They cost them $300, but they sell it for 3,000 because the, the markup is about you buy the brand, you buy the dream, you buy a status symbol. So when you work for, for, for these kind of organizations, you're wearing a badge, and the badge is the name of the company that you work, okay? Then one day you leave this organization and then, then you know that there is no badge, there is no brand, okay? And this is something that I have to say some people misunderstood and, and I'm, gonna, uh, I'm gonna say something a bit uh, funny here. Let's say I, I've been head of human resources for many organizations and when I was in the, that role, many, many people called me to give a speech, okay? And I was really, oh my God, you know, I give a speech at this university, I give a speech in this company, blah, blah. What, what I knew is they were not calling Paolo Gallo. They were calling the company that I was working for. So 
And that's what, what I, I keep on saying to people, and that's the funny part, to say, please don't confuse your ass with your chair. These are two different things, okay? So your ass, it means who you are, and your chair where you sit. If you sit in a comfortable chair called Head of Human Resources for Ferrari, or Senior Vice President for Google, or CEO of whatever organization, don't think for a second the people are calling you. They're calling the company and the role that you, in that moment you're having, okay? When you have this, this understanding and this awareness and you internalize it, you make sure that even if your ass move from the chair, people will call your ass and not the chair. <laughs> Sorry for being, you know, <laughs> but I like to, to understand things clearly and, and to explain things clearly. What I mean by this is when you sit uh, in, in, on, a, on a given position, you have a, a power position in a, diff, in a given company, you're benefiting from the brand and the reputation of that company. Okay. And also, if the company has a bad reputation, understandably, it perhaps it's not the right place for you to stay. Okay. When you stand up from that chair and you're not anymore in that role, you, you don't have, you know, the, the <laughs> a force de frappe, the same French, behind you to protect you and to say, okay, you're working for whatever organization you may think of, okay? You are alone. You are alone. And when you're alone, what do you offer? And in my view, you offer three things. One is uh, what you know, so your knowledge, but your knowledge has to be translated in results. Aristotle said the purpose of knowledge is action, okay? So you need to translate whatever you know in something concrete. So, for example, if I were to say, I know by heart the recipe of the Italian cuisine, but I, can, I never cooked anything, you would say, Paolo, sorry, I don't want to waste time with you because you just know things by heart, but you never cooked anything. So knowledge has to have a, a concrete application and results for your clients. Second is relationship. And relationship, I don't mean the number of followers on LinkedIn, means people that you trust and they trust you. And I jokingly said to, to people, to me the proof is, how many people do you have on your WhatsApp Then when you call, they call you back? Or vice versa. Or vice versa. And then you don't have 40,000 followers, you have probably 100 or 60 or 80 or 100 people that when you call, they call you back and vice versa. Okay? So the second capital that you have is relationship capital. The third one, I call it reputational capital. And the reputation is what people say about you when you're not there. Okay? So why do, I, why do I explain this? Because in the moment of reinvention, it's important to understand two things. The first one, that as you moved from a position, okay, you, are, you cannot play the badge thing. You cannot play the reputation or, you know, I work for this company and therefore you're benefiting from that company, you're just alone in the dark. In order to switch on the light in the darkness, remember what you know and how this is translated into results. Two, remember who are the people that you trust and you're trusted by, so the relationship capital, and the third one, the reputation that you've built. When all these elements are clear, I think you have the right ingredients to shape a reinvention that is meaningful to you because you're serving others. And when this happened, bingo, you have probably 20 years of energy, enthusiasm, motivation, and, and, and meaning in front of you. If not, you're going to look like a, a soccer player that is, goes from Manchester United, from second division, then start to play 
in, in other tournaments and, and keep on playing the same game or keep on singing the same songs, but you can see it's on the sending slope that it cannot be stopped. Well said, man. Well said. And You know, you mentioned sport there. You see it in sports, man. Some of the people I played with were magnificent players, but also not so magnificent human beings. And they didn't, you, they just disappear afterwards because people know and they just get found out so quickly when they're plucked away from the teams. And now actually teams have realized that they don't put up with those prima donnas or anymore. They don't tolerate them that a team is better when you have good people and good people make good teams i think the world's waking up to that we're not i know that narcissists are brilliant at hiding but actually i think people are, are detecting them a bit more thanks to knowledge and etc cetera, etc cetera. but l- let's move on because I'm, I'm conscious of your time so we've we've reinvented we've hopefully and, and i think this is the really important thing about what you said there that work that you're talking about that don't not confusing your chair with your ass means that you have to be going to the gym <laughs> and working out <laughs> that ass before you need it so you have to be building capability you have to be a good person you have to be building networks you have to be thinking about people about you, you have to be reciprocating you have to be doing that early and if you're actually authentic about that then it will actually help you when you are in need of reinventing and and therefore you're actually going to be on your feet much more. So that needs to happen early, I think is really important. But then I've got myself there. I'm ready to go. Now it's a case of revolution. And what I loved about Re- revolution was that it reminded me so much of what a previous guest on the show, Paul Nunes, talked about. He said about many, many innovations are actually recombinant so they're actually using parts of what you, what was used before. Like he takes the example of a drone, Paolo, where the same elements that are in a smartphone are in a drone. So the creators of those components will use them then and create drones or sell them to drone manufacturers, etc. Because here you say revolution is an intense, wonderful moment of reconnecting with your true self. It is a liberating feeling to be who you really are and offer your best to others. It's not about destroying. And I think that's a really important point. But here you say it's about reassembling and reimagining. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. Now, again, because people tend to associate the word revolution with maybe with French Revolution or, 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 or maybe even more, let's say, uh, tragic moments in history now where revolution is seems like you go you destroy everything you found and that's a revolution now that's not the revolution this is this is something different revolution at least the way i, I mean it in, in my in my own book is to say okay if you went through the crisis and you find a meaningful path to reinvent yourself what else is left and to me there are two two block of 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 issues that are presented, game six and the game seven. Game six is a revolution. Revolution is fundamentally reassembling what, what you already have huh? in a meaningful way for people to use. So in a way, I was hesitant to call it, should I call it legacy or revolution? But legacy is more related to you. What is Paolo Gallo legacy? No? And legacy is a bit of a selfish term. So it's like when you are rich people, they, they, they built a stadium and they want their names on the stadium. No, it's, That's not what I mean. It's not about being remembered because you're great. This, this is maybe legacy. Okay, 
is actually what do I give to people that come in after me that will help them to continue in their journey? Okay, so revolution is, is, is something that is externally focused, is what do I give to, to people? It's like with, with your children. You don't want your children to call their children your name to be remembered. You want your children to be independent thinkers, to be good people, to be good citizens, to be responsible adults. And when you do this, uh, off you go. You, 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 you've been a good father or a good mother, okay? So revolutions, to me, is an external focus in creating value to the family, the company, the community, the country that you work for, not to, for the sake of being remembered, but for the sake of, of you to be helpful now. One of the things I think, Paolo, is so difficult for people as they reinvent or as they spiral up, as it goes the same for an organization. It means letting go. And I love what you say here. Letting go is a process that starts with healing, losing and quitting and then letting go. But it's actually the ultimate success, the, the supreme sign of fulfillment. It's returning home. And it's par- passing the torch with graciousness. I love that. And you open here with a Zen proverb. Knowledge is learning something new every day. Wisdom is letting go every day. What, what can I say? Now, without entering into politics, but you see that in politics and even in organizations, you have people that are clinched with their fingernails to power. Okay? And the same in sports and the same in, in many, many other domains and, and, and sectors where people want to continue playing the same game. And in a way, it's like the example I gave you when you're in your 50s and you think this problem will be solved by dumping your husband or your wife, getting a red Ferrari and going on vacation and dancing until 3 o'clock in the morning. That's pathetic to me. It's not only wrong, it's just pathetic. No? And equally, when you get near the end of your life, of your professional career, there is nothing more gracious and, and meaningful than passing the torch to somebody, hoping and thinking that that person would be better than you. And that's the thing that we have with our kids. My daughter just turned 18. She's skiing better than me now. She's swimming faster than me now. She has learned French better than me now. And that gives me a lot of joy to see that my daughter has surpassed me in so many domains and that's given me profound joy to see an adult on on as a work in progress and so far so good so i'm finger crossed i'm a very lucky husband a very lucky father no so the same with, with organization the same with communities the same with teams you want to grow people that eventually will be able to be better than you not because you you're not being good but because you have grown better people than you are okay and that's the ultimate sign of success Okay, why not the opposite is true? When you you stay in power, when you continue doing what you've been doing, when you you don't create uh, independent thinkers and adults, but just uh, executors, then you massively, legendarily failed your role as a leader. So letting go to me is not an act of weakness; it's an act of humility and an act of graciousness to pass the torch to somebody else uh, and and to see these people growing. I'm going to say something I know sounds a bit arrogant, but it's true. I have people reported to me, 12 of them are now head of human resources. Okay? And I like to think that I contributed a bit in their own journey. Some of them in, in great organizations. Okay? And, and to me, when I think about Daryl, when I think about Our, when I think about Lucinda, when I think about Claire, when I think about Megan, when I think about Ingrid, 
true names, that gives me joy to think, oh God, I contributed to their growth, okay? And when I see that the opposite is, is, is true, when you see people that are maybe in the 70s or in, in some extreme case in the 80s, still in charge, still terrified to lose their power in politics or in corporate settings, I feel these guys that don't have a clue, they're not leaders. And that's to me another, something I should have written in my book, which I didn't. Don't confuse leadership with being in a power position. These are two different things. Leadership is not about being in a power position because if this were to be the case, then a lot of people could be taken as a leader. They're not. They're just sitting in a position of power. And most of them abuse of that power. So when you abuse of your power, you're by definition, you're not a leader. So, so to me, this book, it helps people to think where you are in your journey and understanding that the last moment, the letting go, is, is, is probably the most difficult moment because it's awareness that you've created capacity and people are growing and, and some of them become even better than you, not necessarily on everything, in something. And then you, you, you feel that you've contributed to the well-being of society in a way that is more meaningful than just, you know, I became rich because I got, I don't know, a million dollars bonus last year. And it tees us up nicely. I thought we'd finish with this beautiful term, the Swedish concept, like, and this concept really echoed what I hope to do with this show. I, I, I think it's at the heart of this show and the heart of your work as well. And my work is that you're trying to have some positive influence in some way to try and put something positive into the well so other people can feed from that well as well. So maybe you'll share as a final idea the concept of Lagom. Again, it's a Swedish con concept and the contribution is uh, from Gunnar, um, which is fundamentally the capacity to think about the interests of communities before yours. Okay. And it's a word that's fundamentally when in Sweden, which I didn't know until recently, when I went recently to Sweden, when you have this drinker that is passed around the table and people can drink, but enough for, for themselves, but not enough to deprive somebody else to have the pleasure to drink as well. So you have a, a mindset of I'm enjoying thinking about other people. And another law that, for example, exists uh, in Sweden, you can go and walk in private properties, not in, in the apartments, in the house, but in, in the field and pick up maybe raspberries or, or, or wild fruits or, or wild berries. And you can serve yourself, provided that you can serve yourself and you eat it there. You cannot go there and, you know, put you know, a basket of strawberries and go to the market and sell it. But you can have a picnic, pick up some and enjoy it. So the, the overall idea is, of course, we can enjoy the, the, the beauty of life around you, but think about others and how your, your action will impact others. Because if your action implies that you're depriving others of that good, uh, you're not a good citizen. And so the concept of Lagon to me is, is, is actually a beautiful way of explaining this. And again, I, I think in your own way, you, you're, you're doing this because the podcast, you, you're putting so much effort, so much work, so much love, so much trust, so much editing and, and uh, you know, connections and logistics. Uh, and uh, why do you do this? Option one, you're incredibly rich, you don't care about money. Option two, you're crazy, possible. Option three, you have internalized this concept to say, when I see a concept, an idea, an author, a book that is worth sharing, it's my responsibility to offer to the community. 
and you've been doing this for many years. So I think in, in your own way, you should be made a, a um, you know, honorary citizen of Sweden because <laughs> you apply this concept beautifully and, and being invited today is, is an honor to me. So thanks again. We all have some Viking in us somewhere along the way. <laughs> so I think they conquered most of the most of the world. So Paolo, it's been my pleasure. And, and I have to say, from a Lagom perspective, I feel we, uh, we, we both contributed in some way and we both also uh, feed in some way from the same, same field. So it's a pleasure to be a, a Swedish a sw- citizen alongside you, man. And uh, for people who want to find out about your work, people want to find out to reach out to you. I know you're incredibly overbooked as a coach, an executive coach to CEOs all over the world, also as a keynote speaker. Where's the best place to find you? Well, LinkedIn is, is, is a good place. Uh, and uh, if you get my book, you get in, in, you know, also my, my own contacts. Uh, and uh, it's not so difficult. I mean, you just contact me on LinkedIn. I'll, I'll be there and uh, tend to answer within 24 hours to, to everybody. And I highly recommend, again, to buy a copy. They're also on Kindle as well. And just the frameworks in the book, there's, there's kind of grids that you can fill out as well. There's questions to ask yourself as well. Once again, friend of the show and friend of mine, this, the author of The Seven Games of Leadership, Navigating the Inner Journey of Leaders, Paolo Gallo, thank you for joining us. Grazie. Thanks so much for inviting me. What a pleasure.